Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. We started looking and there was a whole lot of discussion about what the rules would be. And then the light bulb came on for us is actually they just need to follow the rules that apply to everyone else. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host. And my guest this week, I'm delighted to say, is Kate Jenkins, uh, who is Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner. Now, the context for this conversation will be obvious to a lot of a lot of you, I think, but let's set it up. Last year, she delivered a landmark report called Set the Standard that recommended an overhaul of the toxic workplace culture in parliamentary offices. This week, the parliament took its first steps basically to implement Kate's recommendations. We saw an apology to staff for past wrongs that have happened. Uh, Kate, Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> it's quite a it's setup, isn't it? Really, really great to be here. Oh no, well, it's lovely to see you. So, um, obviously, huge week goes without saying. As I said a second ago, we just the Parliament's taking its first steps, basically, to roll out uh, this report. Before we dive into a bit of detail, I just want to ask you a, a human question: Did you ever think we'd get here? Uh, look, I, I am a bit mind blown. I think that <laughs> I think that the even the opportunity of doing the report, I think I'd have to say I didn't think we would get to being commissioned to do that. Did I think that the recommendations as they have been would be accepted in full and implemented at the very first moment? No, because that's not how normal mm. life works, mm. not even in Parliament. So I, I just think it's a great sign both for the Parliament but for the country because it says this parliament has says safe workplaces are important and the message to the whole country then is actually that's true in your place workplace as well. Yes. So I feel like it's sort of broken a threshold that we hadn't got to and I think that even though it mightn't feel like to everyone listening that it might affect them, I think in practice, once Parliament takes real leadership, then every other workplace is going to have that model to follow. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get more specifically into every other workplace as we get on in this conversation. So just and just before I push forward, you said, I think, that uh, you you weren't entirely sure that you guys would be commissioned to do the review. Tell me about that. So I've been in the role of Sex Discrimination Commissioner since 2016 and when I started in the role, I really, I chose my areas of priority were 
uh, where, as many people might know, workplaces, uh, education and sport. When I started, there was always this question because I guess the um, political yeah. media asks, yeah. why don't you work on parliament? Why don't you look at the issues for women in politics? And at the start of my term, I just said, well, there's so many other workplaces. That is one workplace, but my priority is in other places. Mm. When I jump forward, particularly through COVID, it was really evident to me that as a country, so many important decisions are made by the people in our parliaments across the board and that COVID really surfaced that. So for me, it was a moment when I realised, no, actually making sure our parliaments are diverse and particularly there are women as well as men making those decisions and that it's inclusive and safe is actually a top priority. So I did start really thinking about how would you broach that? Mm. How would you? And the nature of politics, you know, it could it could go badly. Yes. <laughs> um, but because of the external climate and particularly the bravery of a number of women, and yeah. that's really, you know, the last 12 months have been phenomenal, but particularly Brittany Higgins, Chanel Contos, Grace Tame, they're not the only ones, but they have really turbocharged this. Mm. So then when that happened simultaneously, I was actually already trying to think of what you know, not only was there work to be done, but what might be a practical and welcome yes. contribution. Yes. And so when we were, when this came up, it was like, it was what I'd wanted to do. I felt like the need was there and suddenly there was the appetite to learn. Mm. And also, I guess, in my period of my term, I feel like I was also at a point where I knew a lot more. Yeah. And right. so I was, you know, without doubt, I the team I had was phenomenal and I would say it's the proudest piece of work I've ever been involved with and the Human Rights Commission is a remarkable organisation. So it was sort of a mix of things. And full disclosure, I should have actually said this at the top, I was a participant in the review. I was interviewed by the review. I just need to disclose that to listeners just for completeness and I can also vouch for the professionalism of the team that, that undertook uh, this review. So moving on... What did you learn during during this exercise? So a couple, one of the things that actually even before we put together our recommendations was the recognition of creating a safe and trusted space for people to describe their experiences. That has been challenging across all workplaces. When we did the National Inquiry on Sexual Harassment, we know people who spoke to us really often had never spoken to anyone, but particularly in a parliamentary workplace where there is so many other contests, there's so much power, there's so many dynamics at play for people to be able to either write a submission or speak to us, knowing that no one would ever, it would never be disclosed yeah. to anyone. Yeah. Um, so halfway through the process last year, I realised, and we did almost 500 interviews and we got more than 300 submissions, but actually really early in the process, just that exercise, first meeting face-to-face, -face, but most of them were online, for people to be able to just describe their experiences, how empowering it was for them, what amazing evidence it was for us. Like we absolutely, the reason the work is good is we just, it's overwhelming. It is just the reflection of the facts that we got given. But so many people who came and spoke to us said either they'd never had the chance to talk about this, they'd never realised or understood, but also that they could talk about what the solutions were. 
and having that engagement. So I think at some point last year I realised even if, no matter what the report looks like, we had made a difference to lives and to people reflecting more deeply about how they worked and how they could do better. And I felt like that was a great step. Yeah. And then the next part was just having a brilliant team and, as I said, the Human Rights Commission, the processes and how we do our work and drawing on all of our experience. I think the report, we just absolutely were really clear on what those recommendations would be. Yeah. And as a parliament, and I'm an employment lawyer by trade, kind of basic, how do you make this a place where people can perform at their best? That was sort of one of the fundamentals. It wasn't a whole lot more complicated than that in the end. But was it was it better? I mean, one of the problems with surveys like this is obviously self-selection. You know, people yes. who have had the worst experiences providing you can create the safe space that you're talking about, you know, will, will come forward, Right. Uh, and the report's pretty grim reading for anyone who's had a look at it. Uh, so was was it better, worse, what you thought it would be in terms of the testimonials? So the methodology had a survey, so that is that doesn't have that um, bias, yes. the self-selection bias. So we know that data and that data has been well reported. 51% of people working currently in this place have experienced one incident at least of sexual harassment, sexual assault or bullying yeah. or actual or attempted sexual assault. In terms of the um, testimonials, we heard, and, and I think the response within Parliament has been... Uh, Actually, you got it right. Uh, I haven't heard anyone who said it was not fair because we heard the good things. People love working in Parliament. It's a huge privilege and an opportunity. And in those conversations, we didn't just hear bad. We heard good. We heard a mix of both. Um, and we, uh, re I think we've described that as well as we could. We've just kind of processed. We've got so much information. We are able to re interpret it back. So where we talk about what are the key drivers, key risk factors, things like the social conditions of work, the unusual employment arrangements, um, the sort of different leadership styles, which is about the politics of it, yeah. all of that, everyone really said that really rings true. You've not only described what happens to us, but you've actually explained why. Yes. Well, and then we're yeah. kind of then unpicking, well, how do you keep the contest of politics, but improve the workplace. Yeah, well, just one of those and um, and understanding your employment law background, I just uh, want to drill into just one of the recommendations um, uh, just because I'm curious and I haven't had a chance to ask you about this. So anyway, we're having this conversation <laughs> with everyone listening. That's all good. Um, okay, so in one of the recommendations, uh, you, you've, you've recommended that there be more guidance in place determining the reasons why staff can be sacked because that's the big lightning rod issue in the building is the ease by which people can be moved along out of here, right? And you you reference particularly this criteria of a loss of trust and confidence, which, uh, so just to explain this quickly to people, um, it, under, under the employment uh, arrangements that exist in the building, staff can be moved along, moved out of an office if there has been a loss of trust and confidence. Uh, so when I sort of read that, I sort of, I thought, okay, yeah, I can totally get where you're coming from, right? Like people are anxious that they can be moved on essentially for a personality clash, right? Yeah. Like if we distill it down. Yeah. 
Um, I totally get why you would then try to put a break on that by codifying some reasons, like putting a framework around it so that it's not so arbitrary that someone can just be shown the door because the minister doesn't like the cut of their jib, yeah. right? But that whole, which made me think about that whole concept, though, of a loss of trust and confidence, whether or not as an, as an employment relationship that's even reasonable, right? For my team out here... If I sacked one of them, I mean, God forbid, they're the best team in the country, so why would I? But if I did, it, it certainly wouldn't be <laughs> because we had a personality clash. Yes. There would be a whole yeah. set of procedures yeah. around that. So why is it got to be different here? So it's a great question, and I, I hope I can explain this really simply to you, actually. Uh, so as, as you know, Catherine, but others might know, in this building there's a range of different employment arrangements, but it's worth noting there's four different structures, and this is part of the disconnect. So you work in a corporate world. Basically, yep. um, the private sector employs you in the normal way, unfair dismissal laws apply. Yep. You also have elected politicians who are not employed and they have a different arrangement. You have MOPS Act staff, so members of parliament staff that have their own specific arrangements, and you have public servants. There will be some others, but they're the main four yep. categories. Yep. When it comes to the MOPS Act staff, when we did the interviews, everyone had, or a lot of people had a view that the unfair dismissal laws do not apply yes. to them. Yes. Well, in practice, they don't. That's the, that's sort in, of like... In, in law, they do. <laughs> I know. So I know. in law, they do. Yes. In, in practice, the reason they don't is because if you want to work here, it's such a unique workplace that it's not a good idea for you to sue a minister. Yeah. Um, so we know that, uh, that and that this gives you some context to our recommendation. So the good news about this is the first thing is we started looking and there was a whole lot of discussion about what the rules would be. And then the light bulb came on for us is actually... They just need to follow the rules that apply to everyone else. So the unfair dismissal laws. So our first comment is let's just clear that up. They apply. And the great news, and this is a timely conversation, is yesterday in the in Parliament, I think it went into the Senate, was the first yes, bill. Yes, indeed. And yes. that includes, for the MOPS Act, a provision that specifically says the unfair dismissal laws apply but it does require, so the one thing we added was to say you need to describe what the grounds of termination. Yes. Now, in terms of your question about trust and confidence, when we looked at it, there's sort of been an evolution and a myth and we know that trust is important. These are you know, incredibly um, important roles. Yeah. Um, but there's no reason why the rules that apply shouldn't work and so we did make a recommendation that that idea of trust and confidence be properly analysed by lawyers to make sure if there is a basis what that looks like. So that's the sort of the history, the the idea that unfair dismissal laws don't apply. It, we, we had a few things that we just came out and said, actually, what we're going to do is just remind you that they do. So the unfair dismissal laws, the work health and safety laws and yep. the discrimination laws yep. all apply. Yep. And the legislation that was tabled yesterday is to clarify all of that so there's no doubt. I mean, I, I guess if I add to that and you can tell my enthusiasm, mm. but we delivered the report at the end of last year uh, on the 29th. It was tabled on the 30th, which was the last sitting day. On the first day back, they made the acknowledgement. In the first week, 
they they table the first piece of legislation. Yeah. They have a task force. I mean, I know we can all be worried and scared, but every indication is that the intention is we're going to get this done. Yeah. We don't have time. The, the Australian community isn't going to put up with us mucking around on this one, and I just really am heartened by that. Yeah, well, me too. And in the last conversation I had on the podcast last year was with Simon Birmingham who outlined those steps that he would do that in this week and, and, that, and that has occurred in yes. this week. But just one more on... Um, on trust and confidence. I don't want to bog us down because, uh, you know, perhaps people are bored witless really listening to me pass (laughs) the employment relationships in the building. But if I can explain to people, they are so fundamental to the culture that prevails in Mm. this building, right, and to people's sense of powerlessness, which is sort of one of the dynamics that sits underneath this review. So, I mean, it's just the, the trust and confidence thing. It just sounds like master and servant to me. It's sort of like it's from... You know, it's upstairs, downstairs. It's weird, right? But but you you didn't think at any point in the review that you would just sort of suggest that a different dynamic prevail. Your inclination was codify the reasons and that'll sort some of the more egregious abuses of it. So it was as the package, as has been quoted back to me, you know, the this is a package you can't cherry pick. I think that is only the end point. What we really found is in terms of that trust and confidence and setting people up for success, there was a lot missing in how even, you know, the day after the election people come in and there's just people are running but they don't have sort of some of the fundamentals of job descriptions yep. and really being set up. So some of the trust and confidence was a bit about the chaos and about people not knowing how to do their jobs. Yes. And so the other side of it was really those recommendations about both the systems and the advice to set this up well so that the the trust and confidence really does come down to did one of my staffers leak against me yes. and that goes fundamentally to the heart of what you're employed here to do. Yes. There's no question that minister, you know, staffers of parliamentarians do have a particularly uh, close relationship yep. with yep. the person. Their boss isn't just the employer. They are the person that's elected. So, um, so it was a bit of a um, it was uh, a difficult needle to thread is what you're so, telling me. <laughs> so it, it was do the HR stuff better, Yeah. have the termination, just a bit better Clearer. accountability of yeah. that, yeah. set some standards and also enable that ability to hold people to account. Yeah, I get you. I, get you, I do. I, I get you thinking, but it's just it's something I'd keep stubbing my toe against because it's anyway. But uh, just one more question. With your lawyer's hat on. Yes. <laughs> Before we move, we move on to some other specifics. Um, I think it's it's interesting in my mind. Somebody actually put this in my mind, uh, who I was talking to recently. In the uh, now that uh, well, once this legislation is passed, in the, and and it is absolutely explicit and clear that uh, you know workplace health and safety rules apply, unfair dismissal apply. You know, basically, you know these these guys in this building have have normal working conditions. What do you think the options would be for a class action by former staff? Um, I haven't given that any thought, actually. I, I do think all those mechanisms are there. Um, most employment issues are 
addressed individually in this country. Uh, but yeah, I haven't I haven't given any thought would, to that. Would you like the brief in another life? <laughs> <laughs> Look, my, I mean, I think everyone knows that, you know, I feel like I'm in my right job because my objective is the prevention and the, you know, making, fixing this yep. and, um, and having mechanisms. So I would say in the recommendations we made, if people do have grievances from the past, what's currently called the Parliamentary Workplace Support Service, but will be the Independent Parliamentary Standards Commission, I would encourage everyone to go there. You could also go to the HR function, even if it's from the past. We recommended that that be open to everyone yep. historic as well. Yep. So if I'm really practical, uh, because all of, you know, I'm a lawyer enough to know that um, law doesn't always deliver justice yes, and processes course. aren't always the best outcomes. So I, I'm, if I'm really pragmatic, I listen to that and think, what would deliver for those people if they've been failed? And some of our recommendations are delivering supports and, you know, things for those people that can enable them to get on with their lives yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, uh, I guess that's that's the critical thing really. Once the caravan moves on, it's how you move past the trauma that you experienced in this, in this place. Let's think now um, about trauma a little bit more. Obviously, there are a cohort of f- former staff who have had such terrible experiences in this place that they find it difficult to trust any processes that are connected with this place, even though obviously the only <laughs> the only institution in the country that can make and change the laws is this place. So in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with traumatised people, which is what you've had to do as a consequence of the review and in the aftermath, how do you build up that culture of inclusion? I understand you're not responsible for that because you're not an actor in this theatre, but you've walked on a journey which will have left an imprint on you. So yes, yeah. What um, our recommendations? We worked really hard, recognising that because of the nature of politics as well. Even going to parties felt like not a safe place for some people. Yeah. Um, so and you didn't want the other parties to know. So um, I guess the broad comment would be to say the couple of structures we set up which engage people straight away, were really designed around the complete confidentiality, complete independence yeah. and leaving the control of what happens to a person's experience in the hands of the person. So that's the first. And the two big structures were the Parliamentary uh, Independent Parliamentary Standards Commission, which is... Uh, independent and can recommend to Parliament um, some pretty serious sanctions, but also the HR function, so the Office of Parliamentary Staffing and Culture. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also recommended safety and wellbeing services be improved. Aside from abuse, sexual harassment, bullying, human beings work in this place. It's intense. We come off a night of yeah, you know, five a.m. and all night. There is almost yep. no workplace that um, you know that that's actually televised to the world. You know there is none, um, and that the safety and wellbeing services, as well as the OHS obligations, really mean that people need to be able to. If you if you need to see a GP or if you need to get help. 
it should be something that we're providing. So those were the systems. In terms of the people that we spoke to, firstly, being able to speak and being safe to speak, they told us repeatedly how important that was. So we know those structures will help with that. But also just even this week, having had the acknowledgement, which we called it an acknowledgement because I can't tell anyone to genuinely apologise yes. and it, for it to be sincere. Yeah, yeah. But the reality was everyone who stood up genuinely apologised. And I've spoken to some of the people who heard that and some who were there and they said, it's just like everything's changed. I'm now, I've gone from being seen as the problem and what did I do to someone who is an active contributor to a positive movement forward. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because that is on my list of questions because your wording about what the parliament did uh, this week was a statement of acknowledgement and it went further than I thought it would in terms of an apology. So you didn't invoke the word apology or sorry for legal reasons or because you, I think you said a minute ago, I can't mandate, you know, what humans... (laughs) That's, that's I exactly I right. can't punch the Prime Minister and make him be sorry. That's right. That's that's 100% <laughs> and everyone, everyone, and in fact, even before it was happening, you know, I saw on social media everyone saying it'll just be weasel words yeah. and yeah. Um, we, we, us saying you have to say sorry would not be sorry. Yeah. That would not be the <laughs> same thing as people truly being sorry. No, it's an interesting thought actually. If you'd sort of mandated say sorry, then, you know, it's it's sort of one of those... You can look at it from multiple perspectives, right? If you'd mandated, say sorry, damn you, and and my God, after the last 12 months, these people need to say sorry. But, you know, that would have had another lines of critique, I guess, right? Like, do they mean it or not? So let me ask you this, Kate. I mean, uh, Simon Birmingham in the Senate uh, debate or the Senate um, acknowledgement, uh, apology, said he had learned over the last... 12 months. To my knowledge, he is the only political leader who explicitly acknowledged learning. I mean, that's that's a bit unfair because every, the context of all of this is learning. But I was interested, I was interested in that because the big question I've got about the Prime Minister is not whether or not he's sorry, he said it. Uh, my question is whether or not he's learned anything. And I don't know the answer to it. Do you know the answer? Uh, it's not I don't really know the answer to that, but what I would say across the board is we worked really hard and fast on that process, but over the last 12 months, not just because of our process, but because of the community conversation and, as I said, the, you know, conversation about schools and um, and Grace Tame's sort of advocacy about children, the whole community, I think, has move forward. If I think, and I'm sure you're going to ask, but, you know, when we did Respect at Work on sexual harassment more broadly. We're coming to that. That (laughs) that I have seen every year a change and an improved response. People really don't want these things to happen, but they are a bit baffled. You know, there's lots of, well, how are we still here? What does this mean? So what I would say across the board is we had massive engagement, including from parliamentarians. So we had something like 150 parliamentarians participated in our inquiry, current and former. You know, that this, they didn't have to do that. No. That was completely vol- voluntary. Yeah. And my experience over time is we, we've been seen to them, I think, as a expert and a safe kind of advisor. 
we're not, I mean, my whole, I, I did say, and I might have said to you, Catherine, our job last year was to write about politics without being political. Yes. We did everything so that everyone could participate and the statements were a really great reinforcement. No one stood up and said it's their fault, it's their fault. Yeah. They all said we are part of this and those people listening, that meant everything to them. Well, the, on the on the learning, which leads us to Respect at Work, which was your other big inquiry that had a more mixed landing point, <laughs> let's be honest, um, do you think that the... I mean, what the the conditions you're describing to me and to the listeners is that the that we are shifting the dial, that that it is starting to move, and you've yeah. spent a career in this yeah in this yes. bullfight, right? Yes. So it is starting to move. Uh, do you think it's moved sufficiently? Consciousness has moved, or cultural the cultural default has moved significantly enough for the government to finally do what it needs to do and apply the positive duty to employers to make their workplaces safe. I mean, you're such a diplomat. I think you've said, I think you've said, basically that you shied away from the political work workplace at at the start because there's a there's a big big problem out there in society. The inference being that we're a pretty privileged lot in in the coward's castle that I inhabit, right? So still those people are out there in workplaces without the positive duty. Is this government going to do the right thing or not? So can I go to the first part of the question just for people because I know I'm being asked, uh, do I think, you know, things have changed? Are the wheels turning? I actually think massively, as I speak to you right now, even just this week, I, like never before, I've, we, I've said this before and I will continue to say it, I actually think right now we are at a significant turning point and I think that we'll be looking back and saying 2021, 2022, it really built to a real push. Someone, one of my friends used to say gender equality, it's like an elephant pushing on a house. <laughs> Keep push, push, push and then at some point the foundations break and the house goes over. I feel like, and it's not... Um, it's it's a build on, you know, Me Too and on universities' work and on the National Inquiry and on all the advocacy. There's been so many... The elephant's been pushing hard. Yeah, the elephant. But really yeah. um, strategically. And then because of the last, you know, a combination of COVID and because even the respect at work, that was delivered at an odd time. But while government was doing COVID... You know, the mining companies have embraced it. You know, th there is a completely different conversation from the denial. Uh, so the corporates have been doing what the politicians have been doing as well as deny, you know, question, yeah. undermine kind of thing and just really say, look, this is just slowing us down. Is it really that important? That's really changed. So my, my first comment is I think by parliament really doing this properly without question, it's actually opened the door for everyone else to say, okay, it's not the end of the world, we should just get on and do that. So that's my first comment is yeah. I think we're at a real turning point. In terms of the conversation, the respect at work, yes, there was a history, initially not a response, um, and I, 
I, you know, I'm not naive, but the majority of those recommendations now are in some progress. So that is pretty phenomenal and it is making change and people are telling me that. The second lot of legislative reform, which includes the positive duty, is going to be consulted on, I understand, very soon. Mm. And do I think, I do feel like all of this elephant and house business Mm. um, and and particularly organisations like the Business Council of Australia and Minerals Council of Australia saying we would embrace that. I do think that government will listen to that. I know that the opposition have said they would uh, they would enact that. We recently had uh, Minister Trust from the UK. She in the UK has recommended a positive duty over there. I just think, again, the world is turning and uh, it, it's just such a critical centrepiece. Um, and I think we will get there. I do. Uh, but I don't underestimate all those other things happening as well uh, are making change in real time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, let's end here because obviously you and I both went to Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins' press club address on Wednesday. <laughs> Pretty amazing in that room, wasn't it? Yeah. That was, I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't doing anything. I was incredibly emotional about that. I think... I mean, aside from anything else, their calls their calls to all of us are really powerful. They were two of the best speakers I've ever, ever heard. And they were really proof on why we need really smart, articulate women to be in our public debate and to be engaged in political discussion. So that gave me, it was sort of almost itself proof of why Parliament and our workplaces need to be better at diversity and inclusion because imagine those people might not have got you no, know, the opportunity it, to speak. Exactly. But, They're silenced in, in the in the theatres where it, it matters in the sense where laws can be made and changed. Right. So, And what do you think? Last question, uh, and then I'll let you go because you're flat out. Um, just, uh, you know, we're, we're women of a certain age, you and I. <laughs> like looking at those Speak two. Speak for yourself. Well, okay. Yeah, maybe I should. I feel at least 180. I don't know about you. Um, but looking at those two young women, uh, they're, they're different to us, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, although I think if we'd had those experiences at the time. Do you think we would have been brave enough? Um what I would say, I guess when I look at those is I realise every time they speak and I, in almost every piece of work I do, uh, so the review of the gymnastics, for example, yep. I'm talking to those athletes, in almost every piece of work I do, young women and men that are speaking up about abuse say this is traumatic but I will speak if it means that others won't others have to face have to. this. Yes. And I do think that that's where the courage comes from and we've all got to step in and make sure that we're not just continuing this cycle. Um, I think that generational conversation is is really difficult because women, so I will confess to being mm. over 50 and 60, uh, really there's a sense of guilt. We, How did we Very not much. fix this? Very much, um, yeah. But the reality is in, in the time that we could have actually, we had even less power and uh, we are doing a lot to make sure there is the space. I think what's happened in the last year and I think it's important is that there is a group of women who all have a voice, as opposed to when Rosie Batty came through. Yes, she yes. was really on I think, her own. I know. I think. I, I, oh God. Yeah. So I think that 
Uh, would we have had the courage? It's hard, it's hard to say, but we need to have the courage now. We often talk about the courage of those women and one of the things that I'm really passionate about is we need the courage of actually the leaders that hold the positions of power. Um, when I'm talking to corporates, you know, they talk about courageous leadership of, you know, men who are trying to move this conversation forward and part of me says... It shouldn't be courageous. That should be leadership. (laughs) That is the role of leadership. Yeah, exactly. Don't give yourself a back a pat on the back, fellas. Sorry. And also, I mean, the other the other element we didn't cover off, but I'll just say, as we conclude, the other challenge, of course, too, is to make sure that the the progress is inclusive. Yes. You you imagine, uh, you know, uh, what Indigenous women are dealing with. What yeah. people of colour are dealing with, yeah. and whether or not, if uh, an Indigenous woman and a person of colour stood up and were the equivalents of Brittany and Grace, whether or not people would have listened, and that's a yeah. really, you know, yes, we're, we're not there yet. Exactly, we need and, to. And Catherine, yeah. that I mean, I'm a big advocate because I know I hear lots of people are talking about the Jenkins report, but this was the Australian Human Rights Commission really pulling all of its best resources. And my fellow commissioners, the Disability Discrimination Commissioner, the Social Justice Commissioner, we spent the whole time realizing that yes, there there are disadvantages, but some people are facing just so many more challenges. And as a community, I feel like it's now in our awareness, and that was mentioned yesterday, uh, but I still know a lot of people, are, you know, it's still thinking about women as one homogenous exactly, block. Exactly, exactly. And that's just yeah. simply not who we are. Exactly. And a, and a number of women I want to acknowledge explicitly as we finish up, a lot, there are a number of women out there who have not had the, you know, this feeling of progress and hope over the last yes. couple of years. There are women who feel totally excluded from that conversation, and that is a matter of national shame. So if you're listening... The elephant still needs to turn up for work. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. It's a really flat-out week. Uh, you, I appreciate you coming in to have a word. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to you guys for listening. Uh, we've got another parliamentary week next week. We'll be back then. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.